0: Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest on this episode of All Shall Be Well is Dr. Elizabeth or Lisa Sung. Dr. Sung is a systematic theologian rooted in the Reformed tradition, and in 2017, she was appointed to a two-year visiting research professorship at Mundelein Seminary, the largest Catholic seminary in North America. Her appointment was aimed at helping the seminary community engage the 500th anniversary of the Reformation with depth and nuance. Prior to her current position at Mundelein Seminary, Dr. Sung was associate professor in the Department of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and before that was a vocational minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. She is also a classically trained pianist. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation as we discuss hope for the ecumenical church, the relationship between spiritual and theological formation, and engaging in beneficial spiritual practices to remain connected with Jesus as a woman in academia. Well, hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for being our guest today. Can you begin by sharing a little bit about yourself, uh, your educational background, and a little about your current vocation?
1: Oh, yes. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. So I am a second generation Chinese American woman. So my parents are first generation Chinese. And I was born in, in Iowa and grew up in Pennsylvania and went to college there, did graduate work at the University of Michigan, where I also became a Christian and uh, joined University staff and did my Ph.D. in systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So I basically majored in piano, piano performance, in both college and at University of Michigan. At University of Michigan, I did a a master's in piano performance and a master's degree in musicology. And at that time, my sort of desired professional aspiration was to be a music professor. I'm very, very grateful to the Lord that it was at the University of Michigan through the Ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that I actually became a Christian and was Mm -hmm. discipled there. Needless to say, that was a truly life-changing experience. And so over the course of my four years of involvement in InterVarsity uh, as a graduate student, I found that during my fourth year that the Lord really redirected me during a, an Urbana Missions conference, redirected me vocationally from the path of, of becoming a, a music professor into vocational ministry. And it was mm. kind of a no-brainer because my own life had been so positively impacted by campus ministry and university was the was the context. I really discerned, I heard God's call. Uh, to enter into vocational ministry and to do so with intervarsity. So at that point, that entailed a lot of extended conversations, especially with my father, who didn't understand why I, that meant why I would be declining a doctoral fellowship to continue with musicology, all that sort of thing, to become a Christian, and then much less to raise support, financial support, and to <laughs> become a campus minister. At that time, he wasn't a Christian actually, decades later, uh, received Christ at age 84 for which the um, um, wow. whole family is obviously extraordinarily grateful. But so when I think about my life and journey overall, I like to say God is the only explanation for my life because mm. <laughs> nothing would have prepared me for, for understanding the the world of Christianity and I'm just very grateful that it's always been at the Lord's initiative, uh, His gracious interventions and leading and provision uh, that that's the only explanation for the course that my uh, life has taken. I'm very, very grateful for that. So after I joined InterVarsity, I was a staff worker, campus staff worker, working with undergrads at Hillsdale College and, and also with a staff team at Michigan State University for three years. And then after that, I... Uh, left staff and moved to Chicago to do my MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. When I finished university city here in the, in the Great Lakes West region, invited me to return to staff, uh, serving both as a theological consultant uh, for the region and also to work with graduate students at the University of Chicago. So I spent the next 10 years serving in those capacities, Uh, discovering the world of spiritual direction and spiritual formation, which I'm very, very grateful, and as well, the opportunity to work on one of my primary uh, research interests uh, now, understanding culture, race, and ethnicity, also uh, developed in that time. So in addition to the joy of being able to invest in the development of graduate students in terms of their own preparation for their vocations in the world and in academia. It was a really extraordinarily life-changing and fruitful time. Um, that period between my MDiv and PhD, I left staff again, having her guts called to return to school for advanced studies and systematic theology. And during my program, I was invited to join the, the faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, just as I became a candidate And for the PhD, so I taught there for 10 years and then in 2017, Mundelein Seminary of University of St. Mary of the Lake, which is the largest Roman Catholic seminary in North America, invited me to join their faculty as a special appointment, have an endowed chair in theology, which is normally reserved for eminent Catholic scholars. But because uh, 2017 uh, was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I was invited to accept an appointment to this endowed chair, which it's a research professorship and it has allowed me to uh, give public lectures that foster have fostered greater mutual understanding and a mutual exchange of gifts helping the seminary community to better understand the significance of the Reformation from my own perspective as as an evangelical Protestant. As well, it's allowed me to, besides giving public lectures, I have had the privilege of being able to teach courses to doctoral students and master's students, as well as primarily to continue my own research And work on the books that I'm writing. So it's just been an incredible privilege and gift from God to be able to be part of the the Mundelein community here and getting to know another branch uh, within uh, the family tree of Christianity.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's my journey So so far. Great! Thank you so much for sharing about it. It sounds fascinating, especially you know, coming from Pennsylvania to Michigan. You've sort of been (laughs) all over the East and then the Midwest, and now in Mundelein. In your time at St. Mary's, what would you say has been most formative for you? I
1: would say uh, there's so much that I could say, but perhaps in summary, I would say it's been an extraordinary opportunity to further embrace and lean into and discover at greater levels, the Catholicity of the church and the Catholicity of the historic Christian faith, the consensus in the historic and constitutive doctrines of the faith, and discovering that for all of our differences, there is far more that we share in common than the areas that on which we differ. So maybe a little bit more specifically, I would say that being at Mundelein in this seminary academic community, uh, I've become more aware of a distinction that uh, comes out of the Catholic liturgical tradition, the distinction between primary theology, theologia prima, and secondary theology, theologia secunda. So line really has epitomizes for me that distinction. Primary theology is speech that's addressed directly to God, and the idea is that Our worship, both personal and corporate worship, is primary and fundamental. And then secondary theology, which signifies reflection on God and reflection on the revelation of God, is important, but that it arises out of the first. I could perhaps put it this way, or actually I would quote Donald Blush on this matter. Doctrine without devotion is empty, and devotion without doctrine is blind. So we need both. And what I've discovered and come to appreciate in a much greater way is that I believe that the fellowship of the church, the community of the church is the primary context, the proper milieu for the for the work of theology, for the study of theology. And so it's just been an extraordinary privilege to be part of a worshiping community, a community that worships daily. I have like the other faculty here, or every day that I've been on campus, I've joined in worship in the daily mass, and mm. that has been both, yeah, stretching and enriching. Uh, and again, I appreciate the hospitality of Wonderline in allowing me to be myself and welcoming in that, so that I could consciously and conscientiously practice my faith. That has meant being able to join in the worship to the maximum. Extent that I've been able to do so. So that's part of what it's meant to for me to learn about and to actively lean into all that we share in Christ all that unites us spiritually and in actuality, as well as uh, doctrinally.
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate as you know, and maybe some of the listeners know as well, that I Became a member of the Catholic Church five years ago. And, mm-hmm. But prior to that, kind of grew up a little bit Methodist, a little bit Pentecostal, <laughs> a little yes. bit, all sorts of things. Yes. I spent some time in, the, in a Dutch Reformed church, too, oh, yes. in my mid-20s. mid Anyway, oh. so but my husband works for the Catholic Church, and so he and I have worshipped alongside one another as Protestant in, and Catholic for many years before I officially entered the church. Um, So I really appreciate just your discussion of the unity of the body of Christ. Can you share a little bit more of of your thoughts on on that relationship between the Catholic church and evangelicalism?
1: Yes, and of course that can be discussed or considered, you know, obviously at multiple levels and multiple ways. I would say, first of all, again, just to be clear and to uh, build on what you just said, uh, my understanding of the of our Fundamental uh, unity comes from Ephesians 4, especially verses 3 through 6 and following. And I'm going to read it here. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All of the the recurring references to being one, Mm. all all of these realities that constitute the church are grounded in, as Paul says, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And so Paul's affirming here, I think, the basis for the unity of the church and the Catholicity of the church, really it consists in our confession of uh, the Holy Trinity and uh, his work in redemptive history. And it's our common confession and adoration of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture and Christ that unites us. So it's as we are regenerate and united to Christ that we are united by Christ to one another. So Paul, again, is in these verses underscoring the reality of, he says, the unity of the body of Christ. He says it's both a given, it's a reality. It's already a given, a fait accompli in some ways because of what God uh, himself has done, divine action. And yet Paul can also say in in the same verses he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the body. So unity is not only something that's given to us objectively and eternally on God's side, if you will, but it is something that we have to maintain actively maintain as well strive to maintain for our part and then also Paul goes on to say in the verses that follow he says that there is a unity in faith that we still have yet to reach a unity and a maturity in Christ and in love that we have yet to reach so unity is both it is first and foremost a given a gift and yet it is also something that is a task something that we have to work to maintain and to further develop and grow in that's a task given to all of us as Christians so i just want to stress that it's biblical teaching itself you know that is the basis for our recognition that there is an objective objectively real spiritual unity that God himself has created and there is this objectively real union and communion that we are invited and bid and instructed and, and urged to grow up into and to mm-hmm. live into as well. So the, that's the biblical basis for recognizing our spiritual unity and our fundamental unity in terms of doctrine, the historic Christian confession, which in a nutshell, I would say, pertains to nicene trinitarianism and chalcedonian christology which in a nutshell is summarized in the apostles creed and in the nicene creed right right yeah and that's what all faithful orthodox and and catholics and protestants share we confess it as part of our adoration of the holy trinity uh, so, having said that, so <laughs> I've just spoken a lot about uh, the spiritual and the doctrinal basis uh, for for what we share in common. I would say that from my from my vantage point, I'm really grateful to actually have had a longer history of relationship with Mundelein and the Mundelein faculty, both in terms of teaching, and then I've also I'm a member of the International Catholic Evangelical Conversation, which grew out of relationships forged with, uh, at the uh, Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization, and has been recognized and praised by Pope Francis himself. So it's a privilege, again, to be part of this body as we continue to explore and strengthen our intercommunal relationships and what it means in particular to be united in seeking to make Christ known. In an increasingly post-Christian, obviously post-modern, uh, pluralistic world, there's much that we share in common, and there are, I would say, every, I'll put, let me put it this way, every community, as also is the case with every individual, every commun- human community is finite and fallible. The more positive way to put that is that we are we are finite. Each of us has received a certain gifts, which through God's grace, we've been able to steward and develop. And so we literally are a body. We're formed to be interdependent and able to, the goal is to be able to enrich one another with the differing complementary gifts that, that we can bring. So that's my overall approach and perspective to in terms of, how I view the relationship between evangelical Protestants and Catholics in general. And so wherever, I would just say, wherever there's opportunity interpersonally in terms of forging perhaps interinstitutional ties as well of exchange and cooperative endeavor, especially as we aim toward the world, as we direct ourselves into the world, wherever there are opportunities to explore together and discover and further strengthen those relationships. I believe that's part of Christ's call to us. So I have been really grateful here at Mundelein for the warm welcome and the receptivity of the faculty and students, particularly with the public lectures that I've given, which have brought some of the distinctives of an evangelical Protestant approach to doing theological reflection, they have brought that's brought been brought to the forefront. Yeah, so the first the first lecture that I gave actually um, was a reexamination of the concepts of agape and eros, which examined the work of the Swedish Lutheran bishop Anders Nygren, and then examined the work of Pope Benedict, the sixteenth, his encyclical "God Is Love." and explored a little bit of Pope John Paul II's book, Theology of the Body, and then the work of Dallas Willard, uh, Mm. the evangelical Protestant philosopher, his writing on the concept of agape. So from the get-go, I've been privileged to be able to explain what evangelical Protestants mean by uh, sola scriptura, uh, scripture as the ultimate norm, the final norm, and to work out theological arguments based on that principle. So it's a very different way of doing theology, of course, but Mm -hmm. very well received. And so the other lectures that I've given as well, I found that faculty and students particularly have been appreciative of my being able to provide biblical theological perspectives on issues and that sort of thing. So similarly, I've been sharpened and stimulated and enriched by the opportunity here in this context to learn more about patristic theology, to delve further into my understanding of classical theism and Aquinas on that matter, and to be helped by some of the by moral theologians uh, such as Alistair McIntyre, others. Uh, they have actually really strengthened and enriched the, the work that I'm doing as I think through personhood and issues of identity in Christ, especially as they re- relate to race and city. So my own experience is, has been that it's been extraordinarily uh, stimulating, sharpening, enriching to be part of uh, this, this community in this environment. And I believe that that's what God ultimately desires uh, that all of us in the various relationships that we might be able to form and develop that we would have that sort of a mutual sharpening joy enrichment experience.
0: Thank you. It gives me a lot of hope. And also okay. I feel a lot of gratitude to hear how well you have been received by the Catholic Church and then also how it's been meaningful for you to receive um, from them as well. And I think it's interesting just to think about Hearing from one another as adults and as academics, um, but also I've been thinking about my own children who are, you know, oh. being, being raised in the Catholic Church, and how recently my husband and I went to hear a lecture from Austin Channing Brown at Messiah College, and we just in that moment of listening to her, we realized that our our children need to hear from different people, uh, different denominations, and so we're we're thinking about doing a. Uh, once a month, attending a different church just oh. in the mornings, and then we'll still attend mass on Sunday evenings as we do. But just for them to be able to experience God in different ways, because I know in my own life, I've really, I've, as you mentioned, there's a richness of being able to receive and see a different aspect of who God is from a different part of the body. So yeah, I'm just thinking through sort of thinking out loud right now about the ways in which we sharpen one another and encourage one another. And in the opposite, we've also had a lot of pain from one another, but your experience gives me a lot of hope. So thank you for sharing about that. You mentioned as well earlier about books you're in the process of writing as well as a PhD dissertation. Can you share a little bit about that content?
1: Yes. So first of all, my dissertation—the title is—is is a bit of a mouthful, but I think that's uh, de rigueur. For <laughs> yeah. the title was "Race and Ethnicity Discourse and the Christian Doctrine of Humanity: A Systematic Sociological and Theological Appraisal." Basically, the study was based on the axiom of Augustine that. A person who is a true and good Christian should recognize that truth belongs to his Lord, no matter where it is found, gathering and acknowledging it, even in pagan literature. And so, I uh, had recourse to, particularly, to sociology as a way to arrive at further conceptual clarification and correction of, um, in terms of, what do race and ethnicity signify? What do these frameworks and ways of understanding human identity and social identity, are they in fact distinct? Because obviously in common usage, we use those terms almost interchangeably, use them very loosely, very ambiguously. And for me as a systematic theologian, it was driving me crazy. Mm. (laughs) The way that we uh, use those terms in a very sort of conflationary, synonymous sort of a way, is there in Mm. fact a, a difference? And uh, between those concepts and the logic, the assumptions that they entail when we use racial categories and/or ethnic categories, and so I wanted to arrive at further clarification of those concepts. But ultimately, <laughs> being a um, an evangelical, I wanted to compare and contrast them and to evaluate them in light of scriptural teaching. So, really, the this the dissertation um, had two sort of major subparts. The first one, ultimately, in the first section, I examined the history of discourse of racial discourse. Where did those categories even come from? at what point in history, under what kinds of circumstances? And how did they come to be dominant way that in Western societies and still today that is the dominant framework through which we understand social identity, both in society and and in the church. So I first did a sort of a lengthy study of uh, history and then especially then the history of biology to, to track the development origins and the development of this whole concept of race and races and that sort of thing, which took mm-hmm. me to contemporary scholarship that shows that, uh, well, ever since the beginning of the 20th century, the whole concept of biological races as an ontological reality is completely refuted Completely overturned, and yet those are the categories that we continue to use and to be stuck with in many ways, in a sort of a naive, realist fashion. Okay, so all of that So, <laughs> so basically, that's a mouthful. But um, so, if that's the case, if there are actually no actual discrete biological groups corresponding to species or subspecies within the human race, if they do not actually exist, what is an empirically accurate? alternative way of understanding the way that human groups understand and affiliate. So I found a particular concept, sociological concept of ethnicity, that is actually, I believe it is, it still remains the most specific and empirically verifiable way of understanding the principles on which human groups actually affiliate when they are ethnic groups. And so the Augustinian uh, maxim comes in: all truth belongs to God wherever it's found. The idea is that the best and the most accurate understandings about the world that we can derive from research through general revelation, they're going to be logically consistent with the patterns of description that are that are contained in scripture. And so my hypothesis was that the best sociological understanding of ethnicity was going to be consistent with biblical patterns of description of humanity. So the real heart of the dissertation was to apply this sociological concept of ethnicity, try to understand the major biblical texts that speak to the formation of human diversity and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and that was both then to try to demonstrate that exegetes and theologians who use the concepts of race in a, a naive... In positive fashion, actually, were, were committing, eisegesis. they were imposing categories and ideas on the biblical texts that are not actually there. And so, right, and so yeah. this eth- eth- concept of ethnicity actually further describes the very process of ethnic formation as we see it throughout throughout the scriptures. So, I was able to do that. For me, that was very very exciting. So, uh, the book that I'm writing now is appropriates parts of that, but is aimed somewhat in a different direction, and so my working title now is Racial Identity, Ethnic Identity, Christian Identity, Mm -hmm. and from the standpoints of, in particular, of uh, biology, sociology, and scripture. So it's a large task, but I've been very excited to be here, Mundelein, being able to study and do my research, and to teach and lecture here at Mundelein has really helped me to further work out this argument. So I expect to be complete this book very soon and then to resume work on another book, which is uh, already under contract and already partly underway. It's the volume on theological anthropology for the systematic theology uh, series, Foundations of Evangelical Theology. So uh, that too is a, <laughs> a rather large and formidable undertaking in terms of the various topics, but it's a privilege to get to the work on that.
0: Great. And you answered my next question, which was going to be, when can we expect uh, that book? Because I'm looking forward to reading it. Absolutely. I have a lot of questions about the content, but I'll just have to wait and read the book. Related then, how has your work, your research in the area of race and gender and ethnicity shaped your own experience or sense of identity?
1: Yes, thank you. Well, I would say, again, I'm grateful to God just for his providential hand in all of this. Because my family and where we grew up, uh, so early childhood development, all of that sort of thing, we, we lived in a small town in Pennsylvania where we were one of the few families of color and the only Asian family. So I went through public school and it wasn't until high school that there were any other Asians that I met at all. So I would say from early on as a child, I was aware of what I now know are as uh, racial and ethnic and cultural differences, but because I didn't have the categories and because we were the only ethnic and racialized others, that sort of thing, I really grew up internalizing the larger value system in the community, according to which to be not to be white was to be was to be lesser. And so I basically internalized that message. And it wasn't until actually I became a Christian. And actually, in particular, after my seminary studies, when I read a book by Richard Mao, When the Kings Come Marching, it began to completely create a paradigm shift for me. In terms of understanding the intrinsic value, Uh, that God places upon the development of cultures and of cultural diversity so that actually what I would say is that the development of cultural diversity and ethnic diversity was always a planned development. It's embedded in the cultural mandate given to humanity uh, in, in Genesis 1 26 through 28 and also further further suggested in genesis 2 and so it was actually as a christian and discovering that the bible itself presents this teaching and that there are conceptual resources that are available particularly in the social sciences but also a philosophy that help us to draw out and make explicit what is often implicit in scripture that has been tremendously for me uh, healing hmm. and validating as a person of color as well as a woman sort of thing so most unexpectedly i would say i'm grateful to god for the for his hand on my journey because i never left to myself i never would have pursued the issues of culture race and ethnicity the framework that i was working out of even during my first and on university staff was that being a person of color as well as being a woman, that those are liabilities that work against me, that force me to have to quote unquote prove myself in some way Mm -hmm. to others. And that was the framework that I was working out of, which is just indicative of my whole, you know, socialization and experience at that point. But so actually beginning to discover this alternative perspective lodged in scripture and beginning to explicate and draw that out and to discover that, again, the cultures and the development of ethnic groups, what I would call anti-penultimate goods. They are relative forms of distinctives and bases for self-differentiation and that sort of thing. So they're not of ultimate value because they're all subsumed under Christ for us as Christians, but they are of intrinsic value to God. Um, And so I can only say that out of my own experience discovering these things and having the opportunity to share these findings with others has been a source of a tremendous uh, joy because we all need to understand and uh, we all need healing you know from yeah. our de facto enculturation socialization and that keeps us apart distanced from each other that causes us to uh, rank different uh, racialized groups that sort of in various gradations of most desired and favorable um, onward. So again, left to myself, I never would have pursued these issues, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. even as a Christian and already with with an MDiv, that sort of thing. It was a project that came to me from my inner varsity uh, staff supervisors. I never would have chosen it for myself, (laughs) but it's turned out to be a tremendous gift in so many ways and very, very life-giving.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's been meaningful academically but also deeply personal as well and yes I think many of us will will benefit from your work so thank you so much for that shifting gears then a little bit earlier you talked about the practices of going to mass daily and other spiritual practices that have been different than what you've been used to in your own spiritual formation especially being in academia what practices have been most helpful for you
1: so I'm so grateful again because it was in the course of being in campus ministry within our city that I was introduced to the whole tradition of spiritual formation and writing spiritual theology that reflects on how it is that we grow authenticity and intimacy with God. And I was introduced to various classical Christian practices that uh, went beyond. Some of the essential but basic practices of daily quiet time, prayer, corporate worship, those kinds of things. And I was introduced as well to spiritual direction into that ministry. So I'm very, very grateful for all of that. So perhaps I'll just name a couple of the practices that became part of the foundation for the way that I have lived life, which were indispensable in continuing to practice them as I moved into a PhD program, and then became a professor and all that sort of thing. The first, well, <laughs> I shouldn't rank them, but <laughs> <laughs> continuing, <laughs> this is not, this is only, this is chronological or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, not in order of priority. Pers- but I would say, obviously, my uh, personal worship has been so enriched by being introduced to uh, Lexio Divina, learning how to Pray with scripture and engage in listening prayer, allowing me to hear it afresh Mm -hmm. and in the context of my personal experiences and questions on a daily basis. So that Lectio Divina, which culminates in the prayer of rest or centering prayer, that has been so pivotal and so life-giving, being able to incorporate that into my daily times of communion. I'm very, very grateful for that. And then I would say practice of Sabbath, especially, is crucial for academics and professionals, but also for everyone. And that really, I would say, Marva Dawn's book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy, was Mm -hmm. tremendously helpful for me in the way that she unpacks that, because it it involves all of these various modes that are actually really restorative and life-giving for us. So I had a very truncated view of what Sabbath is prior to reading that book, but her book unpacks it and gives a lot of really helpful illustrations. And from her own experience as a you know an overworked grad, graduate student, mm-hmm. I found that Sabbath was actually not only practicable and feasible, but actually a very concrete way to hold my feet to the fire <laughs> in terms of who who really am I trusting? you know, um, my life too, and that sort of thing. Can I take my hands off of my work for one day? Can I close my laptop and keep it shut, you know? And even right. during, during my, the last months of working on my dissertation, uh, where I had a, a deadline that I was pressing for, that sort of thing, it was <laughs> almost excruciating in a way, but I knew the Lord was calling me actively to trust him and to rest. And, and so I would actually... Take a tablecloth, and I would just throw it completely over my dining room table, where my laptop and books and everything else were spread. Literally, yeah. (laughs) And uh, that was a literally a discipline, you know, for for several months. And but he absolutely, completely, more than honored, you know, that very small attempt and to lean into him and say, "This makes no sense. This is." Utterly contrary to every instinct in my <laughs> in my being right now, that sort of thing. But to discover Sabbath as actually this gift from him, this invitation to rest and to receive what is restorative and life-giving to us. That's a practice that, you know, everything in our larger society and even in the church and certainly in academia, everything militates against that. But that is still mm-hmm. God's incredible gift an invitation for us to enter into. And I really find at this point, it's absolutely key to living life in a sustainable way. (laughs) We were actually really created to be able to work only for a certain amount of time to six days. This is built into our very being. And so to contravene that, we do that. We impair our own well-being and that of others. And when we try to keep grinding it out. So Sabbath has been absolutely crucial, as well as I take periodic retreats. Uh, And so I found it helpful every year at New Year's, I take at least several days, I'm able in my personal circumstances to take several days of a prayer retreat to review the past year, what I've learned, that sort of thing, And really seek God, you know, be in scripture and times of quiet for sort of a fresh word of direction and orientation for for the coming year. So at the beginning of the year, and then at the end of the academic year in the spring, take another retreat to reflect back on, you know, the past semester as well. And then before the academic year begins in the fall, I I do the same. I just find that it's really helpful to have these places where I consciously am able to, to seek God and be in a listening mode and to commit myself and what's ahead to Him. So those have been practices, as well as needing, continuing to meet with a, a spiritual director for help in discerning where God is actively present and at work in my own life. And then obviously some involvement in Christian community, both my church family and then also particularly with my spiritual friends who you know, we know each other while well, We're able to, in our journeys, while well, we're able to really speak in one another's lives, both admonition and encouragement, and pray for one another. So those are just some of the practices that I, but they form the sort of the fabric of my life, and they they provide accountability and encouragement and support, and they've been sources of resilience in my journey, particularly in academia. Mm.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing. I especially appreciate the rhythms that you have, even in the weekly and then the academic calendar in mind as well. I work with med students and I was just meeting with them this week and they were sharing about how at the end of their year, they have a day that's that they're required to go to and it's called uh-huh. Reflection, reflection oh. Day. Yeah. Right. Wonderful. And I was like, "Oh, that sounds so lovely and intentional and great." And they were like, "Oh, it's not what you think it is." But <laughs> it was disappointing. But on the other hand, it made me think for myself, what would it look like at the end of, you know, each different season to actually do a reflection, a reflection day. And you know, for different different circumstances, right? If we have a lot of children or we have, you know, whatever a person's personal life circumstances are that might look different, right? What would it look like to take time to reflect either at the start of a new year or the start of a new academic year or at the end of one? So anyway, your own practices there got me thinking about those things that I was already thinking about and then sort of forgot quickly. So... Thank you. Related to those spiritual practices or or other spiritual practices that you do, how do you continue to cultivate your connection with Jesus, especially in times of transition or waiting to see what God has next for you?
1: Yes, thank you. That's such a great question. Here again, I would say that I found it so helpful to be able to continually uh, return to the history of God's work in my life and journey. And to keep that in mind in times of transition, to remember specifically the ways that he has led, pivotal truths that he has taught me, ways that he has shown himself to be utterly faithful and always doing a new thing as well at every juncture in my life. So just continuing to return to that and hold on to that has been, it's just very helpful to remain anchored and very fortifying as well. Again, I I have found it really important. And of course it's going to look different for, for everyone because our our mm-hmm. life circumstances are really different. But as much as possible to to be intentional about seeking God, setting apart times, you know, or to be immersed again in, in scripture, times for prayer, times to be in listening, that sort of thing, journaling, but also then to to really share those reflections. The heart searching with my spiritual friends, with my pastor, uh, and with others, so that they can be helping me, speaking into my life in this whole discernment process. And so, scripture is just so so rich in providing us with these various examples and paradigms and prayers, you know, of God's people in in transition and knowing it. People, uh, our brothers and sisters, you know, calling us to continue to press into trusting God and to be in a mode of active waiting, which sounds like an oxymoron, (laughs) except that (laughs) that really obviously expresses that we believe that um, God is the one who knows us, who has our life in his hand, who knows the purposes for which we were created. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God Prepared in advance for us to do. So obviously, in seasons of waiting and knowing that we're in transition, it's a very, very difficult and uncomfortable place to be. And yet they're the places where we can press more deeply into and learn how to entrust more of ourselves and our lives to Him. And to examine, you know, what have been sort of my choices and what have been my sort of default understandings of what God's call is for my life. To examine them and to relinquish them as well, to recognize with Paul in Philippians 3, for Paul to be able to say that he has many reasons to boast in the flesh. I, I love that passage. It mm-hmm. says, It is we who are the true circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who we boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Can I say that? Personally, that I boast in Christ Jesus and I put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, as examples of putting confidence in the flesh, you know, his incredible, impeccable pedigree, his education, you know, the best... Theological education under Rabbi Gamaliel. He's Mm -hmm. absolutely unsurpassed in every possible way, not only in terms of his family background and social advantages and networkedness and all of that sort of thing, but his own personal accomplishments. He's far outstrips everyone. And he says they're all examples of putting confidence in the flesh. He says, We, he and we are to put no confidence in the flesh and to boast in Christ Jesus. That's what enables him to go on to say, whatever was to my advantage, all of those prestigious accomplishments, my status and my roles, whatever advantages they were to me. He says, I count them as less than nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on to say that his ambition, now his desire, is to become like Christ in all things, including uh, sharing in Christ's suffering. His desire is to be found in Christ alone. So he goes on to say that he, you know, no longer looks to and dwells on the past. Uh, and he knows he hasn't attained this yet, but he presses forward with everything he has, you know, into this desire to know and be one with Christ, and that his life would be one of sharing in Christ's continuing work here. On earth for the sake of others. Um, That's what he is pressing into. And so I found, continue to find that these seasons of waiting are a way to, that God wants to draw us in to really probe at a deeper level, to be willing and able to examine, re examine, you know, to what extent am I still putting confidence in the flesh? Am I really open to whatever it is that God has for me next? Would I be willing to walk away from it? if he wants to lead me in a completely different direction, is my increasingly my soul desire or the desire that's paramount above everything else, becoming one with Christ. Another passage I spent a lot of time in, it's uh, when Jesus asks Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, John 21, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you love me more than these? And the these is unspecified passage. So in, in many ways, as I think about the spiritual journey, both in the reading that I've done, reading and study, but also in terms of increasingly and as, as adult Christians, that sort of, you know, God continues to put his finger on, <laughs> thankfully, overall, one area of life at a time. At Right, yeah. So you love me, me, more than this. Are you willing to release it into my hands and to follow and to trust i am working out your best interests and well-being and however it is that i'm going to lead you and, and direct to you whatever i'm going to open up for you yeah.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Those passages are definitely ones to reflect on during those times of waiting. The other theme in scripture that came to mind as you were sharing, is the idea of the Israelites, you know, wandering in the wilderness forever, it seemed like, and the idea, the practice of remembering God's faithfulness yeah. in those times. And you said that in the beginning, remembering how utterly faithful he has been can yeah. be su- such a comfort in those yeah. times of just having no idea what's next. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, sort of to wrap things up, then two more questions. One, what are your thoughts on the relationship between theological and spiritual formation? Yes,
1: thank you. I love this question. I would say in a nutshell, as I believe I had occasion to say earlier on in this interview, doctrine without devotion is empty and devotion without doctrine is blind. And so ultimately, theological theology and spirituality and theological formation and spiritual formation are, uh, they're meant to be inseparable. And yet, neither one is identical with or fully coextensive with each other. So I would say that my understanding of, a, of spiritual formation, I love the definition that Ruth Haley Barton gives, that a spiritual formation is the process by which Christ is formed in us. For the glory of God, for the abundance of our own lives, and for the sake of others. I love that definition. It builds, it expands on Robert Mulholland's original definition. But uh, it's the process by which Christ is formed in us. That's from Galatians. And so the reality is that if we are reborn as Christians, we are united to Christ objectively. But in using that phrase, Christ formed in us. It refers to uh, the ver- the character of Christ that has to become a reality that has to be developed and formed and forged, you know, and honed, <laughs> and a full reality within us. And that's the process of of sanctification, etc. Mm-hmm. But in-, in particular, I understand spiritual formation to focus on you know the state, the present state of our relationship with God, growth in authenticity, where I better understand myself and offer all I understand of myself after all I understand of God. So growing in authenticity and in intimacy with God um, through these uh, time-tested classical Christian spiritual practices, which help us to confide in God, even as he confides in us. So I understand that if you don't have that, <laughs> theology, mm-hmm. is worth nothing. Really, really, because in the biblical perspective, knowledge of God and knowledge of reality is for the sake of actions, for the sake of mm-hmm. living, you know, the life, um, the good life, the life that God intended us to live—a life of flourishing. And so, if we're not fundamentally, you know, continuing to grow in our personal relationship with God and all that that means—theological study and theological formation—is largely, it's a Waste not a not a total waste of time, but it's a tragically missed opportunity if um, we're not being intentional about spiritual formation and the theological formation, if it's rooted in and is the if it's rooted in in this authentic and growing and intimate relationship with God, and theology you know has been defined as faith in search of understanding, and in that way, you know, God whom we come more and more. Uh, to know as we study scripture, I'll put it this way. Aristotle said that philosophy begins in wonder. I would want to say that theology begins in wonder and it begets wonder as well. Mm. So theology and theological formation, it is a bit more of a, it's obviously, it's more of an intellectual endeavor where we're stepping back from the subjectivity of our experience. Uh, and examining it yeah critically in light of scripture but also hopefully constructively as well in terms of relating it to and integrating it with the rest of reality including our lived experience so in my mind and certainly in terms of my calling at this point they are co-equal and they Mm -hmm. are inseparable and we separate them and neglect either one of them
0: you know to our detriment and I appreciate too that you've shared throughout this interview, not just our own personal detriment or our own personal gain, yeah. but also to the detriment of others or yeah. to the, um, the impact. Really, impact. Yeah, and, yeah. So, yeah, it's not just about myself and and God or myself and Jesus. It's it's about the way my life also influences others Absolutely. yeah thank you for continuing to bring that sort of communal aspect to our our theology and our spiritual formation so finally we like to invite our guests to conclude with a quote or scripture or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately oh
1: okay yes uh it is joy oh my gosh so many scripture passages <laughs> I'd <love> to share. <laughs> but in this time i'd like to share a section from psalm one 19, that has been kind of the, the home where I've camped out for the last couple of years. And it continues to be really relevant. And if, yeah, if time permits, I would love to read the verses from a hymn written by John Kelvin, actually, which further express this. So the passage from Psalm 119 is verses 65 to 72. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are callous and unfeeling, but I delight. In your law. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. I share that and would invite whoever is listening to, if and as you spend time in that passage, the affirmation, the key affirmation in verse 68 is that you are good and what you do is good. To look at the ways that God's goodness is further explained there in that section from Psalm 119. And then the the hymn, which is related thematically, is, I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art. And the words are attributed to John Calvin. It's from the French Psalter. I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art, my only trust and savior of my heart, who pain didst undergo for my poor sake. I pray thee from our hearts, all cares to thee. Thou art the king of mercy and of grace, reigning omnipotent in every place. So come, O king, and our whole being sway. Shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Thou art the life by which alone we live, and all our substance and our strength seek. Sustain us by thy faith and by thy power, and grant us grace in every trying hour. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness, no harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. O oh, grant to us the grace we find in thee, that we may dwell in perfect unity. Our hope is in no other safe but our faith is built upon thy promise free lord give us peace and make us calm and sure that in thy strength we evermore endure amen
0: amen Thank you so much for those words. And thank you, Lisa, for sharing your time with us for this hour. If people that are listening would want to connect with you or find your book when it comes out, where would they go to do that? To connect with me, here's my personal email address, E-Y-S-U-N-G,
1: numeral one, sum numeral one, at gmail.com.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Uh Thank you so much. We really appreciate it.
1: It's been a privilege and a joy to talk with you today.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.